0: If you've got two hours writing time as a parent of a small child, you've actually got one hour's writing time because at least an hour of your time is the sort of decompression chamber of letting go of the parental hyper-awareness and letting your brain sort of think longer thoughts than the tiny increments of time that an infant thinks in.
1: Hello and welcome to the Vintage Books Podcast. I'm the author Emma-Jane Unsworth and I'm here today to talk to Alexandra Hemingsley about her new book, Somebody to Love. Here's a bit about the book. On the 9th of November 2017, Alex had just been told her then-husband was going to transition. The revelation threatened to shatter their brand new, still fragile family. But this vertiginous moment represented only the latest in a series of events that had left Alex feeling more and more dissociated from her own body, turning her into a seemingly unreliable narrator of her own reality. Somebody to Love is Alex's open-hearted memoir about losing her husband but gaining a best friend, and together bringing up a baby in a changing world. It explores what it means to have a human body, to feel connected or severed from it, and how we might learn to accept our own. I'm really excited to talk to Alex about her story and to ask her about parenthood, family and writing. We hope you're wrapped up warmly and have a hot drink to hand. Settle in and enjoy. Firstly, I want to say congratulations on what is a bold, beautiful and gripping but also enlightening book that is laden with love. I absolutely loved reading it and I think it's a real tonic for these grim times as well to read something with so much heart and also great title. It's a great pun. I love a good pun. Thank
0: you, on both counts.
1: (laughs) I think it's on a par with um, Carrie Fisher's Wishful Drinking and Stuart McConey's Cider with Rodies, both of which I really love as punny titles. Amazing,
0: good pun title. but but
1: some body to love is fantastic too tell me how the title came about
0: yeah it does it it isn't the most comfortable thing in the world to say like to make the point that it's two words like some body to love easier when you've got eye contact or it's written down or whatever but yeah it was just in in a meeting for the book in a form that it now isn't at all um, someone said, "Oh, it just needs to be something like somebody to love, some body to love." And I was like, "Yes, some body, a bit of body." Mm-hmm. And um, and then I went home and listened to the Queen and um, George Michael at Live Aid thing about f- six times in a row, and just was like, oh, "So yeah. good, yeah,
1: <laughs> <laughs> it's perfect, it's perfect." And oh, speaking thank of, um, you. you're welcome. Speaking of bodies, the body is. The book's main theme, um, alongside other themes like family, parenthood, honesty, friendship, reality, courage and creativity. Tell me about when you first started to write the book and how you even began to approach it.
0: My last two books, Running Like a Girl and Leap In, were both about and of the body and sort of exploring that relationship between a person and their body, and how much um, pleasure and uh, balm we can get from our bodies. They can take us to places and give us pleasure, and um, teach us things about ourselves emotionally. If, you know, things like training for a marathon taught me about emotional grit in a way that I don't think I would have learnt from you know tidying my room every night or something like that. Um, And similarly with Leap In, it was about that sort of separation between who you are and what your body can do when it was around IVF and fertility and stuff. And I suppose this was sort of like taking it even a level further. And at first, when I first kind of conceived of the book and sold it, it was going to be much more of a linear chronological timeline, sort of starting with childhood and how I'd developed a sort of sense of myself and my body. And I suppose at that point, which was probably two years ago, I was too close still to the events, uh, the, uh, sort of the three main events that make up the meat of the book. And I was sort of shying away from the fact that they were inevitably going to be the pivot point. Mm. And then I went to Norway and it was, my son was only a couple of years old then. I think he just turned two and it was the it was the longest amount of time that I'd spent not in that extreme like that hyper aware state of having a toddler where every single hour of every single day presents so many opportunities for the death (laughs) and you just live like that like every corner of every table is could be the
1: end of you (laughs) they've always got a death wish haven't they they're always trying to kill themselves
0: yeah, complete and gleefully. Mm-hmm. And, and it is exhausting, even if you're not dealing with all this other stuff. And, but you do get used to it. And women with many children live in that state for like a decade and um, it's totally normal. But at that point, when I was trying to kind of knuckle down into writing a book, I, couldn't, I could, just couldn't sort of get the space. And then I went to Norway and it was the, it was the longest that I'd spent since being pregnant even sort of with a lot of time by myself in my own head without that sort of, those short blocks of time that early childhood, you know, has eaten, when's he going to need the loo, all that kind of constant um, ticker tape that's running through your head. And that was also the first time that I felt kind of restored to my body, going for long hikes and up mountains and into the Arctic and swimming in, you know, literally baltic seas and um and I came back from that and I could really clearly see it had to start
1: at the pivot point and then work back. Mm, it's so interesting that the the physical gave you that moment of discovery so often, didn't it? Yeah,
0: cuz I'd gone on that trip to Norway with a view to researching writing a novel. Mm. Um and it was did turn out to be useful for the novel and I thought I'd come back and write the novel first. And actually, what happened was I, I felt like a real imperative to get this book out. It suddenly felt like I was ready to lay it <laughs> <laughs> in a quite a sort of satisfying way. That you I, you're like,
1: it's ready. time. It's ready. Yeah, it's
0: ready.
1: <laughs> you describe the major events that broke your life and your heart apart and disconnected you from your own body and from the bodies of of those you loved. When was it that you could have that clear view and see these these events for what they were and the effect that they had on each other in your life?
0: Yeah, um, I think that if one of those three things had happened in isolation, I would definitely have responded to them. Either the strange situation with the harmony test where I was given these false results and then presented the possibility that the baby wasn't mine um, from the IVF which was a br- it was a few weeks of not knowing but it was a very intense time and there was being assaulted on a train when I was nine months pregnant and then there was my ex's decision Well, not, decision is not the right word realizing that she had to transition um, and each of those things would have kind of been processed by me very differently if they'd happened in isolation but they all refracted and reflected on each other and I could only see them through the prism of each other so for example I went into doing IVF feeling like an ordinary normal person taking choices that were legal and available and regularly used to the point of almost being commonplace especially for people my age and ended up sort of in what could have potentially been a really toxic legal and cultural meltdown, if I'd been carrying the wrong embryo. But throughout it, all the decisions I'd made, I just felt like me on the sofa having a cup of tea, doing the best thing in a reasonable way. And and I could really see that the decision, the sort of the the sort of hormonal elements to transitioning and stuff are not like, I'm going to do this radical thing and there's going to be a whole new me in a way that sometimes is presented in maybe TV drama or sort of tabloidy stories around trans lives. It It's just sitting on the sofa with a cup of tea and realising that this is how you need to be to be you in the same way that I felt about motherhood. So I felt that informed that a lot. And being assaulted by a man um, took a lot of the argument around sort of the sort of hidden danger of trans people. It made it seem utterly laughable to me because it's it's very clear when someone grabs you that what it's not a, a sexy moment. It's about power and being reminded that someone can do this to you. And it was and it was a very specific experience that taught me a lot about that kind of dynamic which I maybe hadn't appreciated apart from in a kind of column reading head nodding way in the sort of beginning of the me too era Um, and so they all they all sort of informed each other and also the court case that followed that assault was the in many ways the most difficult thing to deal with because the guy was found not guilty and that's it. That is the end of the discussion. The court says not guilty. The door's close and you go home, and you just have to do what you can to process that. Mm. But with the other things, that is a cause a continue. I'm going to be. I'm going to have my ex in my life for the rest of my life, and that's a positive and a good thing because we're going to be able to reformat and reprocess and reassess um, forever. Um, and there's so much space for conciliation and forgiveness and growth and development and sharing and all of those things. But with the court case, it was being told that your experience had not happened mm. and that you had lied about it. And that the court was now making that official and now it was time to go home. And that was really hard. Um, yeah. So they all... They all... it. it in, informed each other like you you imagine finding out that your partner is going to transition will be this one you know if you told 15 year old me i would only have been able to see it as a moment of revelation and pain mm-hmm. rather than an opening of all sorts of different possibilities of how i thought about things for all women for myself for my family it's been amazing watching my parents sort of grow and understand and support in all kinds of ways I never believed them capable of to be honest yeah. um so yeah it's I I sincerely feel like there has been more good in this for me mm-hmm. than bad
1: mm-hmm.
0: um, and I might not have said that if this had all happened when my son was 35 I might have found that very different
1: yeah and, and when do you think you had that clarity to know that these events were tent poles of your narrative for those few years if you, if you see what I mean was that through the actual writing down or did you think that through I suppose the question really is how cathartic do you find writing
0: yeah I found it really I found it really painful but I found it really cathartic mm-hmm. and what I found the process of writing the book forced me to do was to Lay out all the screws and hi- and work out what emotion I was attributing to what event and why, and to make sure that I wasn't burdening myself with decades worth of anger to a man I'll never see again who touched me on a train when it was my ex <laughs> who should have been carrying that, or really importantly, vice versa, because Obviously, your response to the breakdown of marriage is going to be massively heightened if you're also going through an assault case mm-hmm. and th- having to think about the impact that it had on having to go and sit in a court. And I-, I was completely unprepared for how traumatic the court case was. And it was only magistrates court. And I, and I was I was really shocked by that. And I found it quite shocking since to see... And we're not shocking, distressing to see the numbers of sort of rape cases that dwindle and dwindle and dwindle. And I really understand why now. I really, really understand why. Mm. Um, and it's profoundly depressing. Because also, um, since the extract of my book ran a couple of weeks ago in the papers... Someone's written to me and said she was on the carriage on that night. She she really, literally wrote in the email, I saw that man touch you and I saw his friends follow you. And so I know that um, what the magistrate told me about what had happened in my life wasn't true. Mm. He just made an assumption. And that is, in some ways, that's as powerful as lots of the other stuff that happened.
1: Mm hmm. Mm hmm. It's wonderful that from the book being published and you're telling that story that there has been a, a small piece of validation like that. Yeah. You know, that just makes you... Yeah. So you know Massively. that that did happen. You know, that's kind yeah. of... Yeah. And, and a woman came forward to give that to you. you'd
0: have to be... Either have, have superhuman self-belief or not a great deal of self-reflection to just never have had that three o'clock in the morning moment of... I mean, I, I was really pregnant. Maybe, maybe I did just over <laughs> yeah. sure, yes. And you think that, and then, you know, by six o'clock in the morning, you're thinking, oh, why why would you beat yourself up like that? But, you know, you do. When when the system, the legal system is presenting you with one answer, it, it's easy to sort of think
1: mm-hmm. that
0: it, it could have been your mistake.
1: <laughs> totally. I just want to talk a little bit about parenting next, because you and Dee are co-parenting your son. So I wondered if you'd mind talking a little (laughs) bit about that and about how that works.
0: Um, I really am enjoying it. Um, Obviously, I don't know the alternative. It's a little bit like when a celebrity child is asked, what's it like being Madonna's daughter? And they kind of look a bit... I I really don't know what it's like not being Madonna's daughter. (laughs) I don't know what it's like not co-parenting um I all I have to not co-parenting with my ex all I have to compare it to is decades worth of expectations which are I think not a reliable standard to hold it to Mm -hmm. Uh, but I find it to be very freeing a lot of the time there's something really great about I I think I saw some want someone saying that um parenting small children is like running a small business with someone. Mhm. And it's really nice that the thing that my ex and I share is a is a source of joy and not just a source of pain. Mm-hmm. I think if if we didn't have a child the only thing we'd have in common would be incredibly painful. And what we have in common is a sort of ongoing dialogue about someone who we both find like hilarious and weird and adorable and enlightening and silly and clumsy and all of those things and it's really nice to um, have that relationship with an ex and because it puts your own relationship with that ex so far in the rear view that it sort of ceases to be relevant or part of your relationship really anyway but also it's nice to sort of do all the gnarly stuff of parenting and I always think it must be absolutely exhausting to be trying to sort of maintain the veneer of Allure and, and sexiness. sexiness. <laughs> <laughs> and <laughs> like, I like the fact that I'm not having to try and keep those twin tracks running. I can really be a really focused parent. And in new relationships, will that will exist on its own terms. I definitely, maybe wrongly, but definitely as a teen and a young woman had received the message that Looking for somebody nice for a date or be, to be your boyfriend or whatever also came with this kind of parallel, constant mental tracking, running of but could I end up with them? But would they make, but would they also make a good parent? Mm-hmm. But you know, would he look after me when I'm, you know, when I'm 62 and all that, that sort of mental processing that even if you sort of intellectually know. It, you shouldn't be doing you are on some level mm. and there's something like dizzy freedom about knowing that future relationships can exist entirely on their own terms. And I have this amazing filter, which is that if if you're not okay with my family set up, that's okay, but it just doesn't make you attractive to me. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, whereas, normally you have to kind of go on some dates and talk around ideas and see if you're kind of... It's like you have to have three glasses of wine each before you dare to say, um, so what do you think about gender politics then? (laughs) Or try and like really reference super intense comedy routines with jokes that say something quite profound about you as a person. (laughs) Now it's just like, well, I mean... It's there. <laughs> like, either you care about me and <laughs> all, all of us, or you don't. In which, which case, case, fine. But, but I'm going to go sit it. over there now.
1: <laughs> it's sorts of wheat from the chaff, I think.
0: Yeah, and there's, there is there is a real freedom in having your parenting relationship separate from your romantic relationship. Sure. Yeah, um, and for it not to be a source of conflict. Um, this happened when my son was young enough that he has never experienced. A, a cleaving apart of his parents and a change in language or, or some of the other things that children with trans parents have had to work through so it was extremely intense at the time but in many ways has been the absolute making of me
1: mm-hmm. it sounds so nice and focused to just be able to parent with someone just focus on that one thing
0: yeah you know that feeling when you're waiting for a text from someone who you fancy or even just love and you're kind of like when will it be when I'm not going to back down I'm not going I'm not I will not stand down I'm waiting for them to text and that just the sort of absolute absence of that in this in the when you think of all the kind of awfulness and the gnarliness of what we were going through three years ago if I see my ex's name ping up on my phone I just know that it's either going to be a question about whether we need, you know, nappies or whatever while she's on her way over or a silly photo of what they're doing if they're together. There's just that, that to come kind of taking the ego out of it just sort of removes all the oxygen from that kind of anxiety I mean I'm, I'm very confident that I will
1: find new things to be yeah. anxious about <laughs> in the future in the meantime, that oh, frankness no. is worth its weight in gold I think
0: safely <laughs> discuss my future dating in from the um utter cocoon of lockdown <laughs>
1: <laughs> oh god no don't even um and how do you balance being a writer oh. and a mother this is like I'm so interested in this, but how do you how do you do that logistically and mentally because personally i i couldn't i didn't know of anything as absorbing as a as a book that I was writing until I had my first child, and then it was like, oh, you're as absorbing as that and and it's just yeah incredibly yeah. hard to psychologically and logistically balance that um so how do you do it? What are your tips
0: I definitely thought that The sort of, the mundanity of having a toddler, which involves so much wiping, like (laughs) hours of wiping, (laughs) wiping bums, wiping surfaces, wiping mouths, wiping yourself, like the hours, I, I kind of thought, I knew that there was going to be that level of like the kind of constant painting, what is it, painting the fourth bridge?
1: Yes, that's um, right. The, the one they have to start again as soon as they've of, finished it. It's
0: never all wiped. The minute you've yeah. wiped everything, everything something, something else, else got has got dirty. Yeah. I thought that that, because as a freelance, I'd obviously spent loads of hours at home thinking, getting ready to write, which when you live by yourself, you do kind of potter around the house and wipe some surfaces. And that's your thinking time. Mm. And I thought it would be the same. And that then when I sat down to write, I'd have had all this kind of pottering around time and I would just like, let the words fly. And it turns out that that doesn't work. (laughs) (laughs) I was disappointed to realise that If you've got two hours writing time as a parent, especially a parent of a young child, I think this will change dramatically when you're a parent of a 10-year-old who thinks you're embarrassing to talk to and you Mm -hmm. spend all day kind of trying to lock up their screens or whatever. If you've got two hours writing time as a parent of a small child, you've actually got one hour's writing time because at least an hour of your time is the sort of decompression chamber of letting go of the parental hyper-awareness and letting your brain sort of think longer thoughts than the tiny increments of time that an infant thinks in. Mm -hmm. That took a lot of getting used to. And also, I am someone whose instinctively best writing time is probably around four till eight Really? I would faff for in most the evening. Of the day oh, Bills to a crescendo uh-huh. and then just chill out and eat and have a couple of hours of hanging out time. But um, I'm the opposite. I to do, do right in the morning. Pretty intense um, Gina Ford manipulations to get a child that is not needing their most extreme parenting between 4 and 8 pm.
1: It's <laughs> the witching hour, that right? That is the
0: entire. That's, that's the. Meltdown dinner, wearing no clothes and screaming. Bath time, chill vibe.
1: Requiring the most wiping, the most wiping M- is done it, between four and eight. wipe
0: wipeathon.
1: And <laughs> finally, I think we've got time for one last quick question. Do you have any reading recommendations for us, and or inspirations that you, that you've when you were writing Somebody to Love?
0: Yes. Who did I enjoy? I really, really, really loved such a fun age oh yeah Kylie Reid book Mm. um last year because I thought it had a brilliant in it was really intersectional it it intersected race and class and money and also social media hierarchies in a way that very few novels i thought have got completely bang on i think i wrote about this at the time that it was your book adults that book kylie reed and Jesse burton's the confession mm. which all got instagram right at just the point where it was starting to look a bit tarnished as a proposition mm-hmm. anyway and I, and it was it was such a tonic to read i read all three novels in quite a short succession and to sort of think, it wasn't just me; it was doing that too. Because there's almost an entire chapter about Instagram in Somebody to Love,
1: mm-hmm. and yeah,
0: I'd, I'd thought it was just me that wasn't sitting comfortably at the scratchy end of burn it all. It's disgusting. It's for narcissists only. But <laughs> nor was it making me especially happy. Yeah. Um. So yeah, I loved that Kylie Reed book. Um. I'm trying to think of like some sort of powerful go-to that I'd give any woman hmm. but I think if there's anything I've learnt in the writing of this book it's that <laughs> one size doesn't fit all <laughs> so I will stick with Kylie Reed for now yeah
1: it's great it's a great choice well thank you so much for chatting to us and for giving us some insight into into the process behind somebody's love and, and yeah I can't wait to thank read you your so next much for We hope you enjoyed this episode of the Vintage Books podcast. Thanks for listening. You can find out more about Alex's book, Somebody to Love, in the episode description. It's a wonderful book, a real tonic for these grim times, and I urge you to read it if you haven't already. You can find out more about my book, Adults, in the episode description below too. We'd love to hear which books about adulthood or parenthood have inspired you lately. Let us know by tagging us on social media. You can find us at at vintage Books on Twitter or Instagram. Keep reading boldly, thinking differently, and until next time...